Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Joel Shapiro. His newest immersive installation is on view in an eponymous exhibition at the Nashery Sculpture Center in Dallas. The show also includes works on paper and Shapiro's in the Nashery's collection. It's on view through August 21st. Shapiro is one of the world's best-known sculptors. His museum exhibition credits include Cologne's Ludwig Museum, the National Gallery of Canada, the MFA Boston, the Addison, Copenhagen's Louisiana Museum, and plenty more. His work's in pretty much every major museum collection in America. On the second segment, Lynn Myers discusses her new 360-degree installation at Washington's Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden. Titled Our View From Here, Myers' mural covers more than 400 linear feet along the inner ring galleries of the Hirshhorn's second level. It will remain on view through May 14, 2017. Among Myers' previous credits are solo shows at the Hammer Museum and the Phillips Collection, and group shows at the Mattress Factory in Pittsburgh and the Tokyo Metropolitan Museum of Art. First up, Joel Shapiro, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents High Society, the Portraits of Franz X. Winterhalter, celebrating the elegance and unrivaled brilliance of the renowned portraitist of 19th-century European aristocracy. Some 45 master paintings are complemented by clothing created by sought-after fashion designer Charles Frederick Worth and his contemporaries. Now on view. Visit mfah.org slash highsociety for more. The exhibition Dada Globe Reconstructed is now in member previews at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan and opens on Sunday, June 12th. In 1920, the poet and co-founder of Dada, Tristan Zara, invited more than 40 artists to participate in Dada Globe, an anthology meant to document the Dada movement and inspire new works by its participants. It was never published, and now, for the first time, the original Dada works that were meant to be in it have been reunited and are on view at MoMA. Seeing the publication reconstructed as Zara intended it to be is an exceptional experience. Learn more at MoMA.org. Robert Irwin, All the Rules Will Change, is on view now at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. The first U.S. museum survey outside California in nearly 40 years, the exhibition explores Irwin's work in the pivotal decade of the 1960s and culminates in an immersive new installation created in response to the Hirshhorn's unique architecture. Get more information at hirshhorn.si.edu and explore the limits of perception with a modern master. And we're back. Joel Shapiro, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Naturally, the place to start is with the big piece up at the Nasher Sculpture Center, the big installation. We'll have images of it up on manpodcast.com, and I encourage everybody to take a look. When you created this piece for the Nasher, do you start with the physical space they're handing you? Do you start with a form that already interests you or, or somewhere else? Well, I think you start somehow in between. And I mean, I think that's a very particular space and a very beautiful space. And I went to see, you know, I've been there before and I went again and looked at the space and it's sort of just to have some real sense of it. And, you know, it becomes an arena in which you operate in, right? So I think it's a question of what was I going to do? And, you know, it's not a retrospective. And the idea of taking work that I know and sticking it in the space just did not engage me. 
So I thought it was more interesting and you know, to try and do something that was very specific about the space or to utilize the space in a specific way. I mean, I didn't, you know, it's, I don't like to call the work site specific, but extend my ideas into this new context of that space, which is a very unique space. You know, it's 110, I think it's 110 by 30 with 16 foot ceilings. It's a very serene space, all natural material and natural light. So, what I've been doing for the last couple of years, working with a lot of color and wood, I just, the idea of just, and in certain spaces I've just used planks of wood that I've painted and then configure them in different, almost capricious ways so they rearrange, but I just felt that this, that would not work in this space. So I wanted to introduce more specific image, imagery, more volume. You mentioned color. We'll come back to that in a moment. You've been playing with the idea of placing sculptural elements in the air, so to speak, off the wall, unanchored to a wall. I'm sorry, off the floor and unanchored to a wall for the last five, six years or so now. What prompted you or motivated you to leave ground or wall-based supports? I think questioning the idea of just how pervasive the floor and the wall is in terms of the organization of thought that if that becomes the format and if the work is built up, you know, whether it's on the wall, on the tabletop, I mean, it's kind of, you know, it's like the architecture or the flatness becomes, really begins to frame your thinking. And it's something I've been very well aware of in my work for years, you know, just sort of the tendency to battle that or to fight that and where... I wanted the work to read more as a kind of, you know, projection of a thought, of some experience that wasn't so conditioned, you know, by a format. And in sculpture, I mean, you can see, you know, like in a lot of minimalist work, you know, where the architecture itself becomes the format for the organization of the thought, and it, it accepts the plane as a beginning. And that's something that I felt was a limitation in my work. And, you know, early on, I mean, I've, you know, that's something I've been struggling with. It reminds me how much of that minimalism you just referenced isn't just on the floor and reliant on the floor, but that we look at it by, by looking down, by bowing our heads almost to, to, to see it. And, and this, installation at the Nasher is anything but that. <laughs> yeah, well, this was an early work I did, you know, I mean, sort of in the early 70s. So I will basically, I'm totally interested in, you know, in space and architecture, you know, the room work is going into and how that conditions how you see work, but not as a basis of organization. I mean, you know, it's sort of like, it's the same thing in the drawings in the show that I, I sort of, where I sort of want the work to overwhelm the page, you know, overwhelm flatness. And to a certain extent, you could see the floors flat. Your figure referencing work of the 1980s is full of the suggestion of movement. And I want to get to that figure referencing work in a bit. But when I look at the pictures of this Nasher installation, I also 
feel a sense of dynamism or expansion that reads like caught in the act movement is bringing an movement or a sense of, of physical dynamism to an installation, something that you're trying to do, or is it simply an effect? No, I think it's something, you know, you, everything's intended, whether you're aware of it or not. No, I mean, I, you know, no, no, I, I, I was almost interested in this as some kind of dream sequence. I mean, things floating in space and certain things grounded and, you know, what a single unit means, what a double unit means, what, you know, four things put together, do they have, you know, they have a different kind of meaning and, and, and I think that I, you know, the isolation of one unit, you know, in the middle of the room in relationship to two and to other two others on either side is all meaningful. Don't ask me what it means, but <laughs> I can assure you that it's intended. So I think that kind. Of, yeah, I'm absolutely interested in, in that in that kind of movement. I'm interested in how the movement changes. You know, how you perceive it as you move around it. Two of the two of the forms, the Eve Klein-ish blue one and the reddish one, have shapes that seem to refer to your interest in houses. You've been making house referential sculptures since at least 1973, and houses have come back into your work in the last two, well, three, four years. Well, you know, because when I, I mean the the when I was looking at, you know, I had quite a few of those forms laying around the studio. I mean, how does the show evolve? You know, you sort of get relatively hysterical and anxious, and then you start to, <laughs> you know, your face is, oh, God, you're facing the void again, you know? You don't know what you're going to do. And so I was sort of taking certain shapes I had been toying with for a couple of years and joined some together and wanted to sort of project volume into that space and... That's sort of what I did. There was one piece I did not put in, which was a kind of, I guess, it almost looked like a hollow reclining figure. And then instead of a, a head, there was a kind of house, and it was sort of a dream sequence. And that became the kind of basis where I started to work with the show. The, where I began to work with the installation. I eliminated that piece because number one, I just, if I put, it was it would be too large. And number two, I thought it reiterated what the show was all about. So why explain it away? You know, so I pulled the six, that six, well, I didn't make the six piece. I didn't have time. And furthermore, it was too big and it would have been much smaller. And I don't know, it ended up, to me at least, it seemed like, you know, a kind of, an explanation of the entire show, and which it wasn't. Anyway, am I making any sense? No. Anyway, so I was grabbing these chunks and these forms that I had, and some and two I stuck together, and it just one I isolated and I altered and changed, and then, you know, I wanted. It was a difficult show to do because I wasn't sure. I mean, you know, I don't really have a. I have a plan. It doesn't mean that I necessarily think it's going to be successful until it's done. You know, and I think that that kind of, you know, adventure is exciting when it works. 
<laughs> I'm, I'm kind of curious about how these house-like forms have come in and out of your work over the last 40 years. So they kind of... Well, I don't know what else to do. I mean, that's the, I mean, you know, what do you, I mean, sort of, I think basically I'm interested in form and space, right? Which is what all sculptors are. And I find that whenever I make a form that I'm not going to invent a form, right? No one invents a form. I mean, it's not, you know, it's unrealistic. Uh, it's not a realistic point of view to think that you actually are going to invent something. You might rearrange something, things that are familiar into a new form, which would be more what I would, which I, something I think I'm I've done and I'm capable of doing. So I tend to grab the material that's at hand, literally in front of me, or you know I might accumulate stuff or reach and search, and then kind of reconfigure that. So you know more or less expresses my intent or let's say I find out what my intent is via that form so you know it's not you know it's not as if you know I'm sitting around with a pencil and paper generating a form I've never done that I might chop up a bunch of wood capriciously and even that's not capricious I mean I don't think there's anything capricious you know but I mean I and then sort of generate enough form and then take those forms and use them. In this case, I had some of these sort of, they were kind of really stretched out house forms and geometric forms, you know, laying around, which I grabbed and joined together. And, you know, they were the right size and stuck them in that space to see how that worked. And it seemed like, you know, even though they were kind of hand size, when they were kind of haptically, you know, they were more or less things I made by hand. You know, and I, then when I shoved them in the space, they became kind of, they really seemed very satisfactory and convincing in terms of what I wanted to do. My sense is that house forms have come in and out of your work over the last 40 years. I mean, they're there in the early 70s, and then they kind of go away for a while. And then in the early 90s, the most famous one, perhaps, is the the memorial. It's part of a memorial at the U.S. Holocaust Museum in Washington. And then a couple of years ago, they they came back in, often with with fire, with with flame. With, oh, those with burnt artwork. pieces. Yeah. Well, I was doing those burnt pieces in the '70s, but somehow. Oh, you were. That's interesting. Well, there was a I think there was some some competition for a Holocaust memorial, and I think it was Cologne. And I took a house and just burnt it up. Nothing ever came of it. I mean, nothing ever. I think they never, there was no memorial. You know, there was no, I mean, there was no competition. or The competition was next, I think, anyway. But that was sort of, and I, well, a house is such a loaded metaphor. I mean, it's so common. Yeah, which makes me wonder why, if there's a reason that, Sometimes it's in your work. Sometimes it goes away for a decade. Sometimes it comes back. What's? Why does it go away? Why does it come back? Because I don't know what else to do. <laughs> <laughs> is it that simple, or is there a reason that has something to do with the elusive power of the thing? Well, I, I think it's the form. I also think you, you know, it's like it's it's sort of like figuration. I mean, you can't avoid figuration. You know, I mean, you can work with the, with, you know, the most abstract, you know, with planks. 
you stick ten planks together, you know, it's going to have some figurative reference. It's going to have some body reference. After all, it's made by a human, and, and you know, there'll be some reiteration. You, I try to avoid that frequently. I mean, I've tried to avoid that. And then at some point, you just give in. And, you know, the house, of course, is more specific. But even if, you know, you stretch geometry, you're going to end up with some, you know, if it's not a house, you'll end up with some architectural reference, which, by the way, interests me. So, I mean, you know, I'm interested, I mean, and if, you know, if you put a plane into a room that has, it's constructed of, a, you know, that has planes, right, or even on hardscape, you know, there's an immediate scale established between the plane of the work and the plane of the context, let's say, right? Well, that's a good segue to turning the clock back to the late 60s and 1970 when, in your first gallery show at Paula Cooper, you made a series of untitled shelf-like forms, planes of, of wood and different materials, stuff like steel and paraffin and plexi and concrete. You've done gum your homework. <laughs> Well, I, you know, this is a piece I've, I've known about for a while. It's, it's a piece that changes, well, maybe, not, that's not, maybe that's not the right word, a piece that forces the looker's gaze in, in a certain direction, not at the floor, not dead ahead, but kind of Yeah, that was interesting, you know? but, you know, it's, so it's really, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a, you, could, you could sort of determine to some extent how somebody would look at the piece. You know, you'd have to come up to it. It was a sort of head height or below head height, you know, so I hope just about anybody could see it. I guess a kid could get up on a bench if he had to. Yeah, I think I was really interested in material at the time and how each, you know, the sort of... I just think this idea that, you know, you, that, you know the, the presumption that a sculptor is going to invent form, you know, is kind of naive. I mean, you do invent form, but... So you were looking at inventing a different way of looking by the way you installed no, not, it. No, no, I was just, sort of, I was just sort of seeing to to what extent you know I could, to, you know, to, to 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 what extent I could determine how the perceiver would see the work. So if they could see it the way I was seeing it. You know that piece was installed a few years before I was born, and I've never seen it installed since. And so, so far as I know, you have to go yeah, to Portland. Sure in a warehouse of yours somewhere, but it, it, it traffics in the world these days in black and white photographs. So help me out a bit. Is there, is there color and material tactility that... Yeah, I think, what, I, think what I did is I, t I took a kind of common, you know, I took, well, they were common standards and brackets. I'm sure they're still made. And I took chip, made chipboard shelves, and on each shelf I reiterated the size of the shelf with a slab of material. Now, you know, some of it was cast, so it may have been cast tar, cast wax, piece of felt, you know, a, sl a slab of copper. I think the shelving was five-eighths, I don't remember the dimension, I think it was five-eighths inch thick by four by something. Uh, so each one was the same size. So I used the kind of shelf as a template for making the work. So it was all about these sort of equivalent sizes, but different experience. And I think you still have it, right? It's still in your collection. Well, actually, I don't. I think it's now in the museum in Porto. 
I should know the name of the museum, but I don't offhand. But it's the it's in port in Portugal. So you went on from that exploration of material and form to make examinations of material and work like 75 pounds, which is magnesium and steel. Right, well, that was all more or less the same time. And you know, I was sort of... Yeah, in, yeah, well, I, right, right around 1970. Yeah, 69, 70. I was interested in the possibility of, you know, form and, and material and to what extent, the, you know, you could perceive the material. I mean, it was they're much, they were really much more, really about perception and point of view. Yeah, weight again. Could you really read weight? Can you can you read density? I mean, can you sense that you know a piece of lead is extremely heavy, or is its perception of its density altered by having it juxtaposed against a piece of magnesium that's kind of light? And you know, can one levitate the other? I mean, a lot of it was, you know, I, 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 it wasn't magical thing, but it was physical thing. You also sort of, you know, the. I mean, if you look at plaster, you read plaster as sort of lightweight, in relationship to something that's denser, say in relationship to a chunk of copper. Or and maybe it's a, maybe it's a collective memory too of experience. I mean. I'm, you know, we know what metal looks like. Metal's heavy. Yeah, so in the case of the magnesium and steel piece, it was 75 pounds of magnesium, 75 pounds of steel, and the viewer's eyes had to mediate that. Yeah. You know, so at the exact same time, right, you know, in 1970, Jackie Windsor is exploring similar issues of where empirical measurement and form and material meet. Were you aware that she was doing it too? Were you? Did you know each other? A good example is one at 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 the Carnegie now called I think Four Thousand Nails, where she took a piece of board and um, like you know literally a two by four and pounded four thousand nails in it with the idea that the weight of the nails and the displacement of the wood and 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 the different weights would kind of resonate in a in a in a way. No, I wasn't aware of that, but I mean I think that you know young artists who are sort of trying to who are sort of addressing are always addressing similar issues. I mean, they all have the same information in their brains, right? I mean, they know what was going on and they begin to extend, you know, sort of try to, you know, synthesize what they've, you know, transform what they've known into their own personal language. But I, I, I was aware of Jackie's work. I mean, I was much more aware of the, you know, the more nature aspect of it. This one at the Carnegie I don't know about. You know, it's funny, we talk all the time about painters trying to find their way out of Abex, but how much do we talk about sculptors trying to find their way out of minimalism, right? <laughs> well, I think that entire generate my entire generation was trying to do that. And I, you know, minimalism was a dominant I mean it was such a dominant critical critical posture. And I think you sort of had to work your way out of it. And I think the minimalists had to work themselves out of it, too, <laughs> to some extent. And it was pretty concrete. But I think lots of artists, you know, there was that show at the Whitney, the Anti-Illusion show in 69. So I think lots of people were dealing with similar issues of trying to find viable form, which would be... And, in that investigating material and investigating process. 
you made a couple pieces in that period in the early 70s called, for example, 200 blows or 600 blows, where you take a hammer or hit a piece of zinc or copper 200 times, 600 times. Was that literally trying to just get rid of the perfection of finish and form that minimalism imposed by applying a very physical process to materials that well i think i was I, I mean you know you know i was trying to find some structure that would allow me to invent a form and i think that everybody wanted i mean people were i mean this is you know the people i just think artists were interested in structuring their thought and pushing their language as far as they could within a kind of given structure so there had to be, and in a way, the forms became justified by the process. And, and, and this is a fascinating moment for a lot of artists in, in, in doing that. You, you included there the, the, the two bronze birds of 72-73, which look sort of alike but aren't. They were made in the same way but differently. You made one with your right hand and one with your left right, hand. So they kind of mirror images. Well, you know, and I, I mean, I think that, I think that at that very point... You know, is where I began to introduce imagery in the work. Yeah, I mean, I was, you know, all of us. This is a moment in, in especially American art, painting and sculpture, where imagery is, you know, not cool. So why did you want to bring representational imagery in? Was it intentional, or was it just kind of where your, when your hand, when your right hand and your left hand. When, when you come up with the idea to have the two hands make objects, was it just that representation was what they could do? Oh, I, I just thought that that was a rich vein to tap that hadn't really been looked at and that it was emotionally, you know, I was trying to find some imagery that corresponded with my emotional state. And, you know, at a certain point, you know, it was hard for me to relate to a, a chunk of steel. <laughs> It can only you can only get so much out of it, you know. How many sort of egg shapes could I carve out of pine wood? I mean, I make a pile, and that was enough. You know, it would look a little different, or shape things with clay. You know, it can only go so far. But I think I was I was much more interested in you know the discourse of language and reference, and I just think so much richer. But also, not. I mean, I think of the investigation of material kind of gave me, I don't know if syntax is the right word, but a kind of, you know, I wasn't, I, it was not idiosyncratic form. So I was trying to avoid, let's say, I hate to use the word creepy looking art. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, you could express, one one could express their current emotional state Regardless of the the state, with a certain degree of dignity and solemnity, <laughs> which would make for a more powerful presentation and a kind of clarity. And I think that that that's when I began to you know use images. Uh, and I wasn't the only. I believe me, I'm not. I'm not the only person who was using imagery. But I also was not interested in a kind of simple narrative. You know, storytelling doesn't interest me. I was sort of interested in my own experience as to frame my own experience, even see my own experience and development as an artist with a certain rational clarity to see the irrational rationally or something. 
to structure to structure it. Part of your presentation at that point was to make things that were really small. So some of that representational work ends up as a horse, which is a little cast iron piece that's five-ish by three-ish inches, or a chair that I think was even smaller, a bridge that was about that size. Yeah, well, the bridge was about, I just actually talked with Alana Heiss yesterday. The bridge was about 19 inches, uh, the small chair. Well, I also, but I, you know, I think the important aspect of that work was what the image meant to me and how that's reflected in scale and size. So I'm not inventing a chair, you know, I mean, everybody from, God, I mean, you know, Piero della Francesca, I mean, chairs are in pervasive. Chairs and houses run throughout art history. So the size, you know, so it was making the size not intentionally small, but small enough that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't used. I mean, it wasn't, I'm trying, it wasn't making a chair to sit in. I was making a chair more as a metaphor, as a symbol. And then insisting upon that as big enough. I mean, it was large enough, you know, it was enough to for me to identify with. And that's when scale enters. And then you, be, then you get this real discourse, you know, of scale between, you know, my thinking and your experience or somebody else's experience. But, I, you know, so I sort of, so how, you, how one perceives work has always really interested me. I mean, I'm interested in doing the work my own, you know, for myself. And then how do you see that? How does somebody else participate in that? In, in the late 1970s, you kept that sense of scale as you began making shelf reliefs, if you will, works that are small wooden reliefs and constructions that were installed on a wall. Oh, and, and directly on the wall, yeah. There was no, no need to make them large. I mean, you know, and that, but that, I mean, I think, the, you know, sort of was a kind of an insistence on the personal and also, you know, the work is a model of thought rather than work being made for the public consumption, you know, the colossal, or just even building it up larger for the public. Now, I think, you know, at the Nasher, that's different (laughs) at this point in my work. I mean, there is a change. So when you're making those those shelf reliefs on a wall, they're never quite figure referencing, but they are... I just want to clarify. These are reliefs that go right on the wall, or they're on a little shelf? The ones I... Well, I think they go right on a wall. I've only seen them in pictures, black and white pictures, really. Okay, but they have no shelf, then. No, no, not... I mean, they may have had a hidden shelf used to anchor them to a wall. But so far as I know, they weren't on a shelf. But you're you're using rectangles and such that come together to make these sculptures. Oh yeah, okay. These are reliefs. Yes, I, right, right. Well, I think those were more or less successful, depending on to what extent I could, or at least to what extent you, you had a certain sense of my wrestling with the geometry to break away from it. See, I've never liked geometry. I mean, as much as I use it, I like it, but I also want to violate it or I want to, you know, form it so it becomes, you know, my own language. So when I look at the shapes of those sculptures, they seem to me, 
it seems to me they might be the genesis of the more human recalling, figure recalling sculptures that would come to stand alone in a room and, and, and invoke people in, in the 1980s. Are those reliefs, am I reading that right? Well, no? I think some of them refer to that. I mean, you know, I, I began doing explicitly more figures. You know, there's a certain point in my work, and I think this is sort of in the late, in the late 70s where I did introduce the figure. Maybe it was 76. I'm not sure of the date. It is. I think 76, okay. 77. So, and I was doing point. these small pieces, and then I thought, well, you know, if I actually made a little, and I made this sort of abject figure, Yep, a little ten-inch tall. Uh, yeah, these bond. things, and I thought that if if the configuration of the figure was strong enough, you'd read it as language, so you'd read it as fear, or you'd read it as joy, or you'd read it as some some you know state, some human state. They weren't big enough that you would kinesthetically relate to it, but they were small enough that they had enough posture to imply a certain emotional situation. So, I mean, it wasn't that different than a chair. So, okay, all of a sudden, you, so, and so I, I was kind of interested in, in, in what psychological state they could invoke or induce or, or just be a sign for. And I guess I tried that, I tried to, do, I did a little work like that on the wall, but at a certain point, you know, I made it this tree. There was there was a death in my family. I did this tree that sort of laid on its side, and you know, I would always justify this stuff conceptually as a means of, probably as a means of avoiding, you know, the emotional battle I may have been going through, or even unaware that I was going through. But at a certain point, you know, the, with a certain sense of elation, I made them bigger. I mean, I said, oh, all the small stuff was, you know, I just couldn't function in this sort of magical world of the small. I mean, so those small chairs and small houses and, you know, I just did not want and sort of forcing people to enter into mentally enter into these apertures to see something. I mean, to go on a journey. I mean, that stuff that at some point really I decided to abandon and I wanted the work to function more in the real world. You know, when I say the real world in ambient space, not in this psychologized, magical space. You know, I wanted to ask you about Giacometti and, and a specific piece that is, as are so many of your pieces, untitled, which are the bane of an audio show yeah, like I mine. Know. The bane of my life, too. <laughs> <laughs> You made a bronze, I'm, I'm going to describe this, and I'm going to apologize in advance for describing it terribly, but it's a bronze tabletop-sized sheet with three houses on it and kind of a suggestion of a fourth sort of via a, a, a scuff in one corner. And for me, it reads like you're bringing your houses, a form you really liked, into a field on which Giacometti often played, which was kind of a sheet or a horizontal was that oh so was that in, was that an intentional engagement with Giacometti or was that maybe more of a backdoor engagement? Oh, I, I mean, I, you know, I think I've always been interested in Giacometti. I mean, like, who would? How can you not be? You know, it's interesting because I think, you know, the work of that time where something was sitting directly on the floor, and then to kind of 
pull it in almost into a more pictorial space of a, of a flat plane. So instead of having the floor, now you have, you know, if if a house was on the floor and you in front of you on whatever floor, whether it's a carpet or a museum floor, I th- you're sort of relating to that in the space you occupy, right? If you then make it slightly smaller and stick it onto a plane and remove it from the floor, you know, you're removing it into this other world. So that's something that I think my work's been playing with. That's what I was talking about, being in the real world, not not the real world, but in, in ambient space or in a more conditioned space. So I mean, so that aspect, yeah, I mean, I don't, but I don't think it was consciously about Giacometti. It was much more about kind of establishing a field within which you'd see the work. But, you know, clearly the Giacometti references in the work. But, you know, if you had asked me what was the most powerful Giacometti, you know, I would say woman with her throat cut, right? And that and you not, made a piece that kind of referred to that back in the 70s. Yeah, but I mean that kind of that kind of rage or anger is relatively common. Or what? <laughs> I better watch it. We're on national. This is public radio, right? No, but I mean that kind of you know that's a pretty enraged piece. But that manifestation of frustration, let's say, right? is a common experience that we all have. You know, Giacometti transforms that into a kind of profound artwork. And I think that's the power of art, that it can, you know, elicit and perhaps make one understand, you know, the emotional world that they live in. I think Giacometti can do that anyway. So, yeah, I mean, I, so I think that, you know, yes, I mean, I think that, you know, Giacometti's an artist who I've thought a lot about. But I thought a lot about Donatello. I mean, I was going to mention this, and I know this sounds outrageous. But I remember giving a lecture at Cal Arts, and my wife, Alan, you know, Ellen Phelan, the painter, Ellen, each Cal Arts. And I remember, to, and I had, been to, I had been to Florence, and I was just so taken with Donatello. I mean, we all know he's great. And I did that house on a shelf that the modern has, and I really angled the house based on, I think, Donatello's David or my memory of his David, of the helmet. And, you know, and then I somehow, last year there was an exhibition in New York. The Biblical uh, the Museum, Museum of Biblical Art. Yeah, yeah the I mean, of that, that fabulous Donatello show. I mean, that was the greatest show. And, you know, what differentiated Donatello from his peers, I think, was his involvement with how the work was perceived it wasn't as mind he's a great modeler and all i mean he had all those other skills but instead of sort of just making an object for you know for modeling he was very conscious of how you would see the work do you ever make work that specifically addresses an artist or a sculpture whether it's rodin or, or matisse or whomever well, I did. You know, I was in this show at the Dorsey. Well, this, you know, the big piece is you enter the museum at the Nasher? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. That's 20 elements for a lack of a more imaginative title. You know, I was invited by Serge Lemoine, who is the director of the Dorsey. He set up a series of shows called Correspondences, where he asked contemporary artists to find a work within the museum that 
they felt corresponded with their own work. Just ring a bell. Yep, this is a, this is a piece from 2004-05. Right, right. So, you know, he asked me to come over. I was thrilled because, I mean, I, I don't know how many times I had marched for that museum looking at Dagar, Rodin, Carpo, this and that. And I, so, and I, at that point, I was doing all these pieces that were suspended, hanging from the ceiling and hanging from wires and, and then I would sort of take these strings of blocks that I had put together and stapled together and rearrange them, pull them apart, reconfigure them until I found a configuration that seemed to be pregnant or loaded with meaning. Uh, and I had all these. So I, and I, I had one that totally corresponded to the carpo, to the dance, which I had looked at in the past. I mean, because, you know, this is sort of the great, one of the great 19th century French sculptures. And I'm sure maybe, you know, just looking. But, but my, so what I'm trying to get to is that, so I did this, I made the piece larger in relationship. I didn't change the configuration because I already had the piece in relationship to the carpo. So it was made, you know, I mean, to that extent. But I think that there's much greater continuity between the centuries than is given credit. Or that the thought, the process of making sculpture, the process of the language of form has this commonality that almost transcends time. Stylistically, things are different. Yeah, there's work of yours from the 80s and 90s in, in which I think I can find and I emphasize the I think part, <laughs> that I think I can find, say, Matisse and Degas, whether they are figure referencing standing, if you will, sculptures of yours or reclining. Well, when I remember asking Sarah, I said, well, you know, I don't know if I want to do the Corpo, but actually it'd be easier to do Degas as a clear relation. I mean, there's a certain attitude and kind of brilliance in Degas. I mean, the way it just sort of appears to be there, there's kind of totally natural and you know that's something that i admire and that you know, i'd love to have that degree of freedom in my work <laughs> so yeah I would, I would do so yeah no i mean so i think there is this continuity and i think my early work i was very much involved with you know more more with quite a, involved with you know artifacts we're not going to get to spend a lot of time in this conversation on on the more figure referencing work, but hopefully someday we can we can pick up with that. But there is one thing about that work I did want to get to. Your figures almost always seem to be caught in a movement. You know, it's never a figure standing there or laying there. It's almost always mid-movement. And I had written down in my notes to ask you why that is, because I... I just assumed it was always there. And then I read a 1990 interview you did with Deborah Leviton for a show that was in Des Moines and Baltimore and I think one other place. And you said that it took you a long time to get movement into the work. And that really surprised me because it just seems so there and so easy and so almost fluid. When did you start trying to get movement into the work and what was it that got it there? No, I don't, I, I don't think that. I mean, I think even when I was doing those hammering pieces, you know, there was a kind of sequential movement and I think there was always sort of a sequential movement and maybe you know as the work became more sophisticated it was more kind of implied movement 
or I guess is the word kinetic, correct? So I don't know. If, I don't think it was hard for me to get. I'm a pretty jumpy guy. And and, and finally, something that's uh, been in the news lately. You did one of your earliest, largest outdoor sculptures in, in 1989, 1990 for the Hood Museum of Art at, at Dartmouth for a space outside its Charles Moore designed museum building. I think the piece is 21 feet tall. And when talking about that piece in the past, you've talked about dealing with a specific site and a specific architectural situation. And now both of those things, the site and the specific architectural situation, are, are changing as the, as the museum and the university embark on a, on a $50 million expansion project. Were you, are you concerned about what that means for, for, for that piece there? Well, yes. I mean, I was, and I, I sort of didn't quite, I mean, it's just such an awkward situation. <laughs> and it is ironic, right? I mean, it, I mean, there is this real, in every which way. Well, that, yeah, I mean, that was, do you know that the, it was kind of a challenging, difficult courtyard, right? It, it. It it was and may still end up being. <laughs> so I sort of thrust the you know so when Jim Cuno Jim Cuno who's now at the Getty was the director at the time, and it was Jim's commission, and you know I looked at the space and I just thought well you know I was nervous but so I sort of made this large figure that I thought could almost overwhelm the situation and plunked it on that balustrade, as a response to that space. You know, so it was in reaction to that space, and, you know, I thought it sort of had the right scale. So when I found out about, you know, that it was going to be an alteration, I'm not a preservationist, so let me announce that first right up. I mean, that I don't, you know, and I was, they said they wanted to temporarily remove the piece as I do this alteration. I said... Well, then chop a big chunk of that balustrade off and move it outside and stick it on there. So then you'll have a memory of where it was. <laughs> but there was no acting directors at the time. The new director had not been appointed. And I didn't know where they were going to end up putting the piece. I think that that, that piece was actively engaging a specific space. Do I think if it's reinstalled... Will it, can it engage space in a similar way? I actually think it can. So, I mean, I think things can be moved. I don't, you know, without, it'll be different. But what can I say? You know, I mean, I can't, you know, I'm not going to hold up a project. You know, and, you know, they have lots of, it's it's complicated. I mean, I I just think it's really, it's a conundrum. I mean, it's difficult, you know, and. You know, I think Billy and Todd are very sensitive architects, and, you know, it's ironic that they made such a stink over the Folk Art Museum facade. And now they're, of course, gobbling up this Charles Moore courtyard. And, you know, I, I've seen a lot of Charles Moore buildings get torn apart. Yeah, no, I think I think a number of architecture critics, Alexander Lang comes to mind, um, have been have been pointing at that increasingly in the last year or two. As, as as a real issue. I mean, I was. I think the McNay had a. I think it was in Charles Moore building at the McNay at one point. But I mean, I think that's a period of architecture that's particularly vulnerable. Well, well, Joel Shapiro, there's there's so much more I want to know about, and I hope we get 
to talk again someday, but thanks so much for joining me this time. Okay, it was a pleasure. Laffer Art Museum presents the first major U.S. museum exhibition for Matthew Ronay, June 4th through October 1st. Although Ronay has a form of colorblindness, his handcrafted sculptures, installations, and reliefs combine vivid hues from across the spectrum that seem to vibrate and hum. From June 4th through September 10th, Hilary Lloyd presents video installations, objects, and architectural interventions created specifically for Blaffer's galleries. More at blafferartmuseum.org. Support for the Modern Art Notes podcast comes from Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Ellipsis, on view April 15th through July 2nd. Ellipsis is a group exhibition that invites visitors to listen, look, touch, taste, and pause, celebrating the senses and embracing a range of individual and collective experiences. Spanning artistic practices and eras, Ellipsis brings out unexpected variations in perception, interaction, and awareness. Featuring works by Roman Ondak, Janet Cardiff, Felix Gonzalez-Torres, Odilon Redon, John Bresland, Thilius Moss, and Claudia Rankine and John Lucas, in addition to a rotating selection of works by Doris Salcedo, Jean Arp, Ellsworth Kelly, Richard Serra, Getty Saboni, and Mark Rothko. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. In Roman decor... Elaborate mosaics transformed entire rooms into spectacular settings of vibrant color, figural imagery, and abstract design. On view now at the Getty Villa, Roman mosaics across the empire showcases the Getty Museum's collection of mosaics from the 2nd to the 6th century, tracing their histories throughout the Roman Empire. An online catalog allows you to come along on this journey from anywhere in the world. Visit getty.edu publications to learn more. Welcome back. My next guest is Lynn Myers, whose new 360-degree installation at Washington's Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden is titled Our View From Here. It's a mural that covers more than 400 linear feet along the inner ring galleries on the Hirshhorn's second floor. Lynn Myers, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me. So this piece at the Hirshhorn is a 360-degree mural on the museum's second floor. There are only interruptions for passageways into some galleries and whatnot. And I think the only other time, at least in terms of public consumption, that you've worked at this scale was at the Hammer Museum in, in 2011 when you fulfilled a Hammer Projects commission in the Hammer's entry area. So that's the space where the staircase goes up from the garage in Wilshire Boulevard up to the courtyard level, same, same now as it was back then. What is the difference between those two spaces, and and does that difference matter? Well, I guess each of the site-specific projects that I do is dramatically different from the others because the architecture is always so different. And, you know, museums tend to have very 
particular architectures about them. So the Hammer project at the time seemed enormous, but is dwarfed by the Hirschhorn project. Hirschhorn project's probably five times bigger. Something like that. It's hard to actually identify the the percentage bigger than it is because neither of those drawings covered the entire wall space. But the the project itself was just so much bigger at the Hirschhorn. Uh, and then, of course, you know, working in the round is an entirely different thing than working, you know, either on a flat surface or with a right angle and, or any of any of the other architecture that I've worked on in the past. So when you when an artist does a mural or, or a sculptural installation or whatever in a 360 degree context, there is an inevitable temptation for a viewer to read narrative into it in a way that there isn't in a 90 degree L-shaped space such as at the hammer. Do you think about that when you're an artist? Is that possibility that a viewer might read narrative into a piece a plus, a minus? I, I definitely think that, you know, when you're when you're making a work of art that's large enough that the audience is gonna walk along, you know, along its length it automatically creates a kind of narrative because it's the audience's experience of it happens over time and changes as they travel along the piece. So even with the hammer project, you know, I, I definitely recognize that as having narrative qualities because it was in that large staircase and, and museum visitors, visitors walked up the staircase along, you know, along the drawing but I thought a lot about it with the Hirschhorn project in term I thought about it in terms of it being a circular narrative. So in terms of it being a narrative that doesn't have a true beginning or an end. So what is the narrative if there is a, a specific narrative that you hope people engage with on on the way around the piece, so to speak? I'm not exactly sure how to answer that. I mean, I guess when I say narrative, I'm talking about the passage of time rather than a story. Because to me, the piece feels very much like an organic story that's unspecific. I mean, there's this great, intense organicness to to the piece. Something seems to be happening or unfolding, and I don't think you're you know telling a fairy tale or anything. But I think, but that there is a relationship, whether it's between your hand and the wall or whatever it is that happens on the way around the piece and whether or not that's kind of, you know, whether or not you hope that happens. I guess my feeling about it is that it's inevitable that there is a kind of story that happens in a piece when, when a viewer needs to walk, walk along the piece to, to take it in. So, you know, if you have to, if it's a 400 linear foot long piece, whether it's whether it's flat or in a circle, you can't see it. You can't see it unless, you know, you standing in front of it will not see the whole piece unless you are willing to move along, along that course. And in my mind, that creates a narrative rather than a predetermined narrative. So, I mean, there's the narrative of making it, whether you're talking about the nuts and bolts or whether you're talking about just the time spent, that could be, you know, I guess you could, you could say that's a narrative. I don't really think of it that way, but, and then, and then there's the other, then there's the other side of that, which is the, the narrative that might, that might be experienced when you're in the presence of the piece. 
Did you did you ever, you know, whether it was back when you were a student at Cooper Union or or later, sit down and think to yourself, if if I'm going to work on walls, and and of course you work off walls too, but if I'm going to work on walls, I have to have a position vis-a-vis Solowit. No, never. I mean, I you know, I've loved his work. I lived in Connecticut briefly, became more familiar with his work when I was living up there. You know, I I recognize what important role he plays in in that realm of wall drawing. But what he did and what his work continues to do is so different than what I do. Is that intentional? Because I, I mean, I agree with that, obviously. But is that something that you staked out consciously? No, I, I, I just want to have my hands in it. To me, yeah, that's, that's interesting because the, the two places where what you do depart from him most is that you predetermine composition to a, to a certain extent. And then the activity of the hand on the wall is, you know, the first or second most important thing for you. And it is the first or second least important thing for him. Right. Right. Yeah. So, you know, whereas his, from what I understand, and I'm not a Lewitt scholar by any means, but from what I understand, you know, it's basically a set of instructions and, with my work there, there, there's no way to simplify it to that degree. So yes, you're correct that, you know, the geometry of, of the wall drawings is laid out to, to greater or lesser degrees before I get started. But the mark making my mark is, is so primary in, in the, in the wall drawings. Was there an artist from whom you took that as being an, an important idea. I mean, my guess was that you had come to that position as, you know, an antithesis to Lewitt. Was there, was it the other way around? Was there an artist who had an idea in that direction off of whom you jumped? No, I think that, and it's, it's not a reaction. It happened organically. The, you know, starting to make wall, wall drawings really happened as a result of feeling restricted by the edges of the other work that I do and looking for some kind of solution to that. So it wasn't in reaction to, you know, other artists or other works that I had seen. Although I I can say that I saw a Richard Wright wall drawing years ago that just blew my mind, totally and completely blew my mind. But I, you know, so it sort of made things seem possible that would not have seemed possible otherwise. Yeah, Richard Wright did a. I, I remember a really great series of of drawings on on windows and walls he did when the MCA San Diego opened in uh, the old train station in uh, in downtown San Diego. Wow, I have to look up pictures of that. I have to see those. It was really great. Yeah, <laughs> it was really really great. So fantastic. I mean, it really does. It does. So then you can understand me seeing this piece and thinking, oh, so much more is possible than I ever imagined. Yeah, because I, you know, like I love Solowitz and, and I, you know, to a certain extent who doesn't, but, you know, they suggest infinite possibility within a system and a certain confined area rather than possibility full stop, you know, rather than just endless possibility open and, you know, they're, they're not open-ended, whatever they are, they're not open-ended. Right. Correct. I was, I'm also interested in the idea. Dia, in the question of decoration, so ever since Rauschenberg, for example, artists have 
increasingly played with the idea that art is or 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 can be decoration. So, you know, for example, in Rauschenberg and a number of the spread pieces in the early 1980s, late 70s, or early 80s, plays a lot. For example, with the stereotype that 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 gay men are decorators, and he includes fabric samples and things like that in those works. And among more recent artists, Larry Pittman, for example, has engaged with ideas of, of decoration in contemporary art a lot. But those are artists who deal with representation, and, and abstract artists tend to resist any associations with decoration. How do you feel about it? Well, I, I, you know, I, the one piece of that that I feel strongly about is that I don't want my work to be wallpaper. Beyond that, I get confused. How so? Because I don't know, because I, I don't, I don't know where, where decoration ends or begins. It seems very mushy. I don't like the word. Yeah, I, I think the word is probably more problematic than the thing. Right. And so that's where I get confused is I don't like the word. And if, so, you know, if, that were, if that were a primary term that people were using to describe my work, I would have to rethink what I was making. I guess I think of direc- decoration as being one-dimensional. Yeah, and, not a, and, and maybe explicitly not a conceptually motivated engagement with space. You know, when we think of Diego Rivera in Detroit, for example, nobody would dream of calling... Detroit industry murals decorative because, among other things, they engage with contemporary idea about labor and and economy, and very much with the physical space they're in, both within the museum itself and within the city they're in. When you make a big piece, whether it's in L.A. or Washington or somewhere else, how far outside of the physical environment where you're standing and making the piece are you thinking about engaging? I'm not sure I understand that question. Do you mean is the is the city where you're doing is the city or the environment in which you're doing a piece interesting to you, or are you mostly interested in the physical space from which the piece can be seen? I don't think that the two I don't think that those two things can really be separated because I think you know in terms of you know if you, if simply think about the architecture of the hammer versus the architecture of the Hirschhorn and how those buildings in some ways reflect the cities in which they were built. So I, I don't really draw lines, you know, di, di, I don't have divisions there. But I certainly think about the energy or atmosphere of a city in which I'm working when I'm planning these larger projects. So, you know, for instance, the project at the Hammer, the palette there was certainly impacted by my sense of that city, of Los Angeles, even though I've never spent an enormous amount of time there. And, you know, so it's, it's kind of a superficial understanding of what, what LA is like. So that's just a, you know, that would be like a very simple way of talking about how bringing the, bringing the city inside the, inside the building. So in the hammer piece, which is on a big wall, you used a lot of circles and, and, and round forms same for a piece you did at the Katzen at American University in Washington same at the Hirshhorn and it seems to me you use circles more on walls than you do when you work on mylar is there a reason for that you know actually it's that's not entirely true but per, i think that the the geometry gets buried in the works that i do in the studio to a point where you can't even dig it out anymore whereas the site specific works I I leave enough of the wall exposed that maybe that reveals that architecture inside the drawing, the architecture of the drawing in a way that you wouldn't see it in the studio works. But I also think that 
it's really important to have a framework for the drawing to sit on when I'm working on such a large scale. And that's less important with the works that I do in the studio because I can kind of contain them. And so I can, to use a inarticulate form, I can kind of afford to let go of that geometry with the works in the studio in a way that I can't do on a large scale. There has to be more planning. And, you know, the Katzen is a good example of a project where the geometry wasn't as developed as it should have been when I, when I began that piece. And so there was a more organic quality to the way that the wall drawing developed and it worked out great, but it could have been a disaster. Did anything change from when you did drawings or plannings for the Hirshhorn piece to when you finished it? Did anything change while you were in the process of working on it? You mean in terms of the preparatory, like the the composition? Yep. Yeah. So I reworked nothing terribly dramatic, but I reworked probably two or three of those compositions as I was making my way around the circle of the gallery space. So probably, you know, if, if the walls were numbered one through eight, breaking that breaking that circle up into eight parts. I think probably at least through wall four, maybe through wall five, I didn't make any dramatic changes. And then I started to shift things around a little bit. Part of it was as I got closer to the Robert Irwin scrim piece and recognizing that, you know, that that piece was partially visible in that opening in the inner circle gallery, wanting my wanting to give that air and space so that my drawing did not encroach on his scrim. So when you work on a wall, a, a wall absorbs ink and the hand moves across it differently than a sheet of mylar absorbs material or, or, or the hand moves across a sheet of mylar. And I'm wondering for you, what is the difference and what does one offer you that the other does not? You know, I think the mylar is just a sensuous material, you know, on different levels. It's, you know, it has this, this slight tooth that's almost velvety. And, you know, if you run your hand along a wall and really, really feel what that feels like, it's not, it's, it's rough. It's kind of sandpapery. So I'd say the mylarism is just a sensuous material. And, and walls don't have that, but, you know, walls have the, the working in architecture gives the, gives the drawings a kind of concreteness that you don't get when you're working on a substrate like mylar or paper or even canvas for that matter. Are you ever, I I don't know the condition, you know, I don't, I don't mean to pry about your conversations with museums or institutions and and how you decide the spaces you get or or want and, and the surface that is then available to you but is 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 working with mylar at the same architectural scale at which you work on walls interesting or for reasons that as a non-artist I can't think of is that just not possible so the mylar doesn't come in these very large widths I do get it directly from the manufacturer, but 
you know, to, to have a roll of mylar that would be even like 10 feet, it would be too heavy. I'd need a forklift. In fact, there was one time when I, I tried to, I tried to order some ridiculous, ridiculous sheet of mylar from the manufacturer and they, and they actually asked me if I had a forklift. So, so <laughs> which, at which point I was like, okay, I probably need to downsize this order a little bit. So that, so what I, the way I've dealt with that in the studio is by piecing the mylar together and then the, the drawings or paintings reflecting that so that, you know, there'll be like a, a point at which two sheets meet or overlap and, and that gets acknowledged in the composition. Probably, I hadn't really thought about it this way before, but, you know, dealing with that is not totally dissimilar from dealing with architectural interruptions in the site-specific works. The difference would be that those interruptions, I would have dealt with that in the preparatory work for the site-specific projects, whereas the drawings in the studio, when I add another sheet of mylar along the way, what's happening is that the, the piece is just kind of growing organically, like I'll start it on, you know, at one scale, and then, and then as I reach the edges of the mylar, recognize that I need more mylar, that the thing needs more space to live in. Excellent. Well, Lynn Myers, thanks so much for talking with me. You're welcome. It's been fun. Thanks, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.